poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, The Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites, Nikki Giovanni read for us, The Life I Led. You'll also find Naomi Shihab Nye, John O'Donohue, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Across the years, I've heard Kevin Kelly described as one of the most fascinating people on the planet. And now that I've spoken with him, I understand why. He was the founding editor of the Whole Earth Catalog and of Wired Magazine. He's really a philosopher of our lives with technology. He doesn't think we should be surprised by the power of technology companies right now or unduly alarmed for the long run. He's fascinated by what we might learn from the Amish and how they collectively discern which technologies to use or not and why. In writing and in life, Kevin Kelly has an original eye on the character and the spiritual meaning of technology that will unfold over time. We have a moral obligation to increase the amount of technology in the world, the amount of possibilities. And that's sort of what technology is doing over time, and that's sort of his role, is to increase the variety, the diversity, the options, and the possibilities that we have so that anybody who is born would be able to surprise God. And so um, I think that's what it is. It's, it's a way of generating surprises and that's the spiritual dimension of technology. It makes that much more likely. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Kevin Kelly's current title at Wired Magazine is Senior Maverick. His books include The Inevitable and What Technology Wants. He likes to note that the year in which he was born, 1952, was the first year that the word technology appeared in the State of the Union Address. So, you know, a question I often ask at the beginning of my interviews, whoever I'm speaking with, is about wondering about the spiritual or religious background of someone's childhood, however they would describe that. I think with you... um, I think I want to ask about the technological background of your childhood, like your your earliest memories of what this meant as part of life in that time in which you were growing up. And perhaps it's connected to a way you might talk about what is spiritual or religious. Sure. So um, when I was growing up, which was in the suburbs of New Jersey, which is really basically the suburbs of New York City, technology was really not something that we thought about or certainly did not talk about very much. Computers were a thing that we didn't see very much of. Um, I had the unique privilege, I might say, or the unique opportunity to see computers very early before many other people saw them. My my father was involved in some um, role with computers and took me to a computer show around 1965 or so, I think. Mm. (laughs) And um, I was totally bored by them. They were big cabinets. They didn't seem to do anything. They were nothing like the computers in the science fiction stories that I was reading. They just didn't seem very real. They were were kind of like, um, I don't know, cabinets that spewed out printed paper. They're, you know, they talked in numbers. And so the image that I might have had if you asked me about technology when I was a kid was, oh, that's pollution, it's uh, big factories, it's maybe big airplanes and mm-hmm. rockets. Yeah. So let's do some definition of terms. Um, the word technology, you, you define technology broadly. So just, just talk a little bit about what you mean when you use that word. Well... 
I use it broadly to mean anything that's produced by a mind, and that mind may be an animal mind. So in, in the broadest sense, when a, um, a beaver builds a dam, that's technology, just like a human dam would be technology. So it's, it's things that are the product of, of minds. And it's broadly a new domain of things on the planet that sort of would only occur because of life, but are themselves not living. And so these artifacts, these, these processes sometimes that are made and not born, it seemed to, seemed to be like a wholly new category. And individually they are. So a spoon is kind of a result of living processes and minds, but it's, right, itself right. is not living. A shoe is not living. Uh, a chair is not living. A car is not living. But as we make more and more of these things, the, 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 it requires many technologies to make a new technology. So if we hold up your iPhone or your phone, that's a result of thousands of other technologies that are needed to produce that. And I call that system as a whole the technium. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. more than just a bunch of technologies in plural. It is a system that's like an ecosystem mm-hmm. or like an ecology that has its own behavior. And that behavior is an extension of the life force, the evolutionary process that has produced life. It operates in the technium, in that system, in the same way that it operates on living things. And and even as you as you kind of walk through some of the examples of things that you know that in the 21st century might not necessarily come to mind for people when they think technology like a dam <laughs> um or you spent some years roaming around remote parts of asia after you dropped out of college and you talked about really like seeing mm, inventions which i think you would say technologies like aspirin cotton clothing metal pots and telephones as just so fantastic because th- these things as you say they're not living but they become part of our lives and enhance our lives, even that kind of um, low-tech <laughs> dis- yes. technology. And, and, and in fact, the low-tech probably has more impact uh-huh. on our lives than the high-tech. So right now, wherever you are, if you look around, most of the things that we produce with our minds uh, are very old. So we've got, you know, we've got wood tables, you know, um, roofs, concrete, metal pipes. These are all ancient. And most of the stuff that is running your life is very, very old. But we tend to think of technology as as anything that was invented after we were born. Yeah. But most of it has been invented before we were born. And it's not just the hard physical things that would um, hurt you if you dropped on your toe. It's things like a calendar. It's institutional things like a library. Mm -hmm. It's... um, as you say, it's, you know, it's aspirin, it's, you know, cotton clothing. All these things are as technological as, um, as your phone, but we don't see them that way. And they have, in some ways, far more impact on us than we kind of realize. And, you know, I'm, I find your book, What Technology Wants, to be really important and thought-provoking. And I think, you know, if there's if there's any piece of your work or thinking that we're going to, like, dip into more, I think it's that one. Um, also because you wrote it, I think, 2010. And because of the pace of acceleration of our technologies, I mean, the world has actually changed a lot in that time. Um, but, but one thing you pointed out in that book that has been pointed out to me just a couple of times um, in the last years, but I always I think it's so important is that the that the word technology comes from the ancient Greek from techne, techne, which is like art, skill, craft, ingenuity. And you also use the phrase, you know, this is about useful arts. Um, that feels very tethering to me as we think about how we live with our technologies. Yeah, it's, um, it was originally seen as um, all the things that people did that were um, useful, but maybe not necessarily beautiful, or maybe not necessarily um, 
thought-provoking, but that were, were useful. And if we look at, again, technology in the broadest terms, we discover that, in fact, our own humanity is one of the things that we invented. It's, <laughs> it's in part, a product of our minds. So yeah. the reason why we're having conversations about technology today is that it's moved from just being useful which it still is, to something being close to our own identity. And we're now asking ourselves, well, who are we and who we want to be? Because it's very obvious that we have the power to decide that. Exactly. Right. And um, so, so this moment we're in, it raises, you know, and again, maybe this is just another degree of a phenomenon that's happened across human history, but we're faced with this realization that we need to reckon with the moral force of our technologies like on many levels but also manage our lives with technology and i'm i'm just curious about how you work with that and i was very interested like in when you wrote um what technology wants in 2010 you said, so this would be 2010, you know, seven years ago. I don't have a smartphone, Bluetooth, I don't tweet. My kids grew up without TV. You had no cable. You said you didn't have a laptop or travel with a computer. Um, is that still true, all of that? No, uh, that's not true. I mean, it's, that was true then, but no, I have, um, I do have a laptop. Mm-hmm. I do have a smartphone. Uh, and I do tweet. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we change we adapt. Yeah. Um, I believe in trying everything at least once. I believe that we have to kind of engage in technology by trying it. Mm-hmm. I think we have no, we should have no uh, hesitation about dropping things if they don't work. Um, right. And I think we're going to see, you know, social media is, I don't know, maybe 5,000 days old or something. It's It's pretty, pretty young. And I think we're going to see people um, become educated over time, understand what it's good for, and uh, move on. So I think it's too much to expect that we can figure out how technology works immediately. Right now, yeah. It's too complicated. mm -hmm. They're they're very complex. And, you know, you and I and everybody listening spent maybe four or five years of fairly difficult practice and study in order to learn how to read and write. I mean, so why do we expect that social media could be learned just by a, by being next to it, by, by just by hanging around it? Yeah, and I experience it's hard for people to just actually step back and take in how new and right. young, like how right. much the Internet is, is in its infancy right. because it does feel so powerful, and it is so powerful. Um, I think also these technologies are addictive. I mean, I, I, I'm wondering if we're going to look back like 20 years from now or 50 years from now and see that like, like just reflexively buying your preteen a smartphone was like what it would have been to buy your preteen a lifetime supply of cigarettes, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, it, it, we definitely, I think... Um uh, yeah, as you say, we'll look back on things and say, oh, my gosh. Um, you know, so it's like uh, we were growing up, we didn't have seatbelts in cars. Yeah, you know, people right. piled up in front. It was like, what were they thinking? Well, you know, we didn't have that concept of, of safety at all. Um, so I think, yes, I, I think we will we'll change our mind. But also at the same time, you know, back then people didn't drive as fast either. And so... As you have, you know, standard going 80 miles an hour down a, a highway with bigger cars, um, the safety has changed. And so I think social media will change in the future as well. And, we, we, and we'll look back and say, well, my gosh, we, we do things differently now. Th- th- that process of um, refining things, I, I think, is the necessary path of um, technology. Mm. But I I actually wrote about the Amish because I think the Amish had a great lesson for us in their approach to technology. And let's just, I just want to just, you know, point out if people don't know that you did, you had this enduring fascination with the Amish that started a long time ago in your life. And actually one thing that struck me when you, you wrote about being deeply involved in the early years of the online world 
one of the things you've said is, um, out of complete nothingness, we were harnessing a virtual commonwealth. When the internet came along, it seemed almost Amish to me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so keep going. So, so the, 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 the Amish, for the listeners that don't know, are um, a group of uh, religiously bent people, heritage out of um, Northern Europe, who are seen as being anti-technological, but actually are just behind. They're just, they're just later than us. And the canonical vision of, of the Amish are, are a community who don't have electricity, who do things without much technology. But in fact, the this, this story is a little bit more complicated than that. They're uh, changing all the time. They're in the process of um, always evaluating the technologies. And it's that process that I found most interesting. I was, I was really very, very curious about how the Amish decided what they were going to use and what they weren't. And they're not that much different than most of us because most of us are at the point where we can't use all technologies. There's just too many. So we make decisions. And from the outside, our decisions look kind of like crazy, irrational. I mean, okay, so I I have uh, state-of-the-art internet, but we don't have TV. It's like, Someone said, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and the Amish will have, you know, they'll have um, no cars and no bicycles, but they'll have skateboards, you know. <laughs> they, don't have, they don't have zippers, but they have disposable diapers. You know, it's, it's like mm. you kind of look at it and say, what's the, you know, what's the strategy? What's the theory there? Well, the theory is, is very simply that unlike most uh, Americans, we're individualistic, so we decide individually what we're going to do or not going to do. We're going to, you know, we're going to use email, but we're not going to use Facebook. But the Amish are different in this way in that they decide collectively. And here's what the criteria that the Amish use implicitly to decide whether they're going to adopt a technology. And the, and the, and the criteria are, are, are basically two things. One is, will this technology strengthen my family, increase my family? So the, mm. the mm. Amish's, their ideal is to have every meal with their children until they leave. They want to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day with their children. And then the second one is very similar, which is, does it strengthen the community? How much time does it bring them and keep them in the community. So the reason why they have horses instead of cars is because the horse can only go 15 miles away, so they have to go shopping, go Mm. to church, Mm. go to visit, all within 15 miles. That forces them to pay attention, to to support their local neighborhood, their community. And so when they're looking at a new technology, like they say, you know, like LEDs or whatever, does it help them do that or does it not? So they're, they're not rejecting technology. They're saying we want technology that serves our purposes. Right. And, and what, the way that they do this is also interesting is they don't think about the technologies. They have Amish early adopters. And these are guys, usually in any community, who are eager to try new things. And they have to get permission from the bishop. And so the bishop will say, okay, Ivan, yeah, you can have uh, a cell phone in your truck for work. And so for the next year, they watch, his community watches Ivan to see how that affects his family, his community, his work. And if they don't think that it's a positive, then he has to give it up. So it's a community decision. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with philosopher, technologist, and senior maverick of Wired, Kevin Kelly. One thing that has also evolved pretty rapidly between the time you first started being involved in this and writing about it, even in the last few years, is the incredible power and kind of increasingly consolidated ownership of 
the digital world by some companies that are kind of more powerful than any political superpower ever was in some ways in terms of how many lives they reach. So, so you know, the, the phrase, what technology wants, for you is a, an intriguing phrase that also has human agency in it in terms of how we respond to that. But I think there's this feeling now that that what's all woven together with what technology wants in the sense you meant it, we also have what Steve Jobs wanted and what Mark Zuckerberg wants and what Facebook wants us to do next. And behind those companies, you have philosophies like, you know, move fast and break things. And you have this core value of disruption. And it turns out those th- those are at odds, I think, with a lot of what we want as human beings, in fact. I don't know. How do you respond to that? Yeah, um, well... A lot of the great um, new wealth from the big mega companies like the Googles, the Amazons, Facebooks, are the result of a mathematical inevitability around networks called the network effects, which is that the value of a network increases by the square of the number of members, which means that you have exponential increase in value for just kind of a geometric increase in the number of people. So what that also means is that we have this effect of, you know, the bigger get even bigger because the bigger it gets, the more powerful it gets, the more powerful it gets, the more attractive it gets for people to come onto the network. So you you have these network effects, which means that um, things balloon up. You have kind of one or two winners that seem to take all. That is just the natural effect of networks. We're going to see it again and again and again. There's going to be natural monopolies that come into these things. And um, it would be horrible for the long term, except for the fact that all these natural monopolies are very short-lived. They all have, um, (laughs) they all unravel almost as quickly. What's new, what what we haven't really figured out is that when you get to the scale of We've never had these networks at this large, so there's almost like two billion people on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, like so many, so many human beings. Right, uh. so many human beings. And what's happened is, that in fact, nobody had thought about this. This is not anybody's intention, but in fact, Facebook and the Googles have become quasi-governments, and they have to shift into a new mode, which we have never experienced before, which is this kind of corporate quasi-government, mm-hmm. which means that they have to treat customers more like citizens, which means they have some of the other duties that governments have of fairness and equitable access and stuff that corporations haven't really had to deal with before. And I don't think this is going to go away. This is going to become mm-hmm. the new normal. And so we're going to have to evolve um, you know, new standards, new practices, new, new expectations of how these new entities work when you have a platform of 2 billion people that you're trying to govern that has great effect on democracy and speech what do you do well it's crazy to beat on the CEO for not doing a better job because (laughs) nobody has ever done this before we don't have any idea what's going to be involved and everybody's making this up as they go along. So um, so this is going to be a, a process. And there's great power there, but there's going to great potential for good. So um, I, I think we have to, you know, be vigilant, but we should also be humble and kind at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the interesting points you've made across the years that is just not something I've heard anyone talk about in this way. You wrote a a piece called The Next 1,000 Years of Christianity. You had a conversion experience in in Jerusalem a long time ago. um, That's right. To Christianity, to kind of a belief in the basic Christian tenets. I mean, one thing you wrote in this piece about um, the next 1,000 years of Christianity is what is missing and what may take several generations to supply is an understanding of the spiritual meaning of technology. And I think that is such a fascinating phrase that you never hear anyone use. What do you right. mean when you say the spiritual meaning of the spiritual meaning of technology? Yeah, yeah. So so I think that um 
technology has a, a spiritual dimension or direction. It's a, an extension, acceleration of evolution through life that its origins is actually not in human minds, but actually back at the Big Bang. So, so all the things that evolution's trying to do, and that's the question you want to ask is, well, where is evolution going? Is there a direction? And that's a very controversial question in biological circles. There's a small group of people and biologists, and I'm on their side, who say that there actually are directions. There actually is a, um, there's directions in evolution, and technology is going in that same direction. It's, it's actually accelerating those directions. And so what it, the direction seem to be is, is in making as many new, complicated, interesting, self-organizing structures as possible. Hmm. What it's doing is trying to increase the possibilities in the universe, increase the number of degrees of freedom. And we have a moral obligation to increase hmm. the amount of technology in the world, the amount of possibilities. And that's sort of what technology is doing over time, and that's sort of his role, is to increase the variety, the diversity, the options, and the possibilities that we have so that anybody who is born would be able to surprise God. And so um, <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's, it's a way of generating surprises and that's the spiritual dimension of technology. It makes it much more likely. You can listen again and share this conversation with Kevin Kelly through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with technologist Kevin Kelly. He co-founded Wired Magazine and is one of our greatest techno-cultural experimenters and meaning-makers. He's also a founding member of the board of the Long Now Foundation, a group of individuals encouraging long-term thinking. One place you said, um, and to me this gets at the notion of like, okay, so so there's just this, it's just this possibility machine, but then there's also human agency. So we, you said we can't influence the direction of technology, the direction of technologies, but we can influence its character. Yeah. So you and I had no choice about whether we became teenagers, assuming we lived that long, but we had a choice about what kind of teenagers we could be. And so Technologies sort of follow a developmental pathway, where, and, and I know this by looking at the order of technologies on different continents in prehistory, when there wasn't really much influence between the continents. And so they, mm -hmm. they follow a roughly the same sequence where you, you know, you'll have domestication of dogs before pottery. You'll have, you know, invention of sewing after pottery. There is a, a natural sequence. And so... Um, which suggests that there's certain inevitability to technologies. Once you have the previous ones, the next ones are kind of going to happen. Right. And I would say that, you know, like once you invent electricity and copper wires and switches, you're going to invent the telephone. So that, and once you have the telephone, you're going to invent the Internet. So the Internet was inevitable, but the character of the Internet, whether it's uh, international or transnational, whether it's commercial, whether it's private, whether it's open or closed, all those questions are not at all inevitable. Those are, those are the questions of a species specific. And those answers make a huge difference to us. So, so the other image I kind of would use to illustrate this is imagine rain falling down in the valley and the particular path of a single drop as it hits the hillside is completely unpredictable. 
you cannot predict the path of that drop as it goes down the hill, but you can say with certainty its direction, which is downward. So, so right. it's inevitably going to go down, and collectively all the raindrops will go down, but the particular path of an individual is unpredictable. And the same thing with technology is that the, you know, at the individual product level, we still have huge amounts of choices in the character, which has a huge difference for us. And so we're engaged in that process right now with AI and social media. Those, we can't stop them. Mm-hmm. They're going to come. But we can. We have a decision about the the character of social media. Yeah. You know, all the things that we're talking about, the rules, the regulations around it, the governance of it, the social etiquette, and the same thing with AI. We'll we'll have choices there. So we have plenty of choices that make a huge difference to us. But any any efforts to try and stop it or outlaw it are going to fail because those yeah. things are inevitable at the large scale. I like the language of, of spiritual technologies, of thinking of you know meditation and ritual and virtues, even like, I don't know, the Amish example you gave of like a practice of discernment that is a tool for choosing how we live and what you do and not do. And What do you think of that language of spiritual technologies? I, I, I think it should be developed. I think people other than me should, uh, should run with it and try and... Um, try to strengthen and deepen it. Unfortunately, for a lot of spiritual people, they tend to categorize technology as an enemy, as, as devilish, as uh, satanic, as something that um, is at odds with our humanity and certainly at odds with divinity. Um, and so reversing that and thinking of it as a divine force and looking at the spiritual dimensions I think it would be really fantastic, and it would maybe help people begin to adjust their view because you know there's going to be more more technology coming. I yeah. mean, um, we are going to become more technological ourselves, and 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 the the funny thing about this is it's a two faced deal. You know, we at times feel as if you know, we work for technology, that we're the slaves to it, that it's our master. And at the same time, it's very clear that, you know, that we are the curators of this. Yeah. And I think <laughs> that we have to accept the fact that both of these things are true all the time, that, it, that we are both the parent of technology and its child, mm-hmm. and that we are both the master of technology and a slave at the same time all the time. And that kind of... Um, that kind of paradox is difficult for a lot of people, but I think it's closer to the actual relationship that we're going to have with it, where we are both the created and the creator at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I feel like that's where these spiritual technologies precisely can come in to help us inhabit that space and work with it generatively. Yeah. And and, right. I mean, and and get to right. that get between direction and character like what yeah get to that. almost any mystic of any religion will tell you that basically there's a necessary paradox at the heart mm-hmm. of any spiritual belief and so if you get to the paradox it means you're you're at the root it's not like it means it's wrong no it means it's true yeah do you have grandchildren I don't you don't. Uh, I was, I was, no. was going to ask you how, if you did have grandchildren, how would you, so, you know, you know, let's say these humans who are now growing up with, you know, working with iPads when they're three and having phones when they're nine, yeah. um, or maybe six, uh, how would you talk to them, this generation? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, about, you know, been... about parenting their technology or like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been polling people as I go along, asking them what their kind of um, policies and approaches are. Yeah. And it's really remarkable at the diversity. I mean, I've had, you know, met people who are, you know, yeah, yeah, we give, we give the babies from the beginning the whole thing. And others like, no way, you know, not until they're 16, whatever it is. And, um, uh, and everything in between. So I, I don't know if, if I, in the particulars, I, I don't know if I have anything to offer in particular because actually I don't even know right now. And also I will have to say that it probably depends on 
the kids. I, I don't think yeah. we, you can have a universal rule. It depends on the kids, the environment, et cetera. Um, but I do think, in terms of kind of the, the, the spiritual side of it, is that I think almost having some constraints as a matter of principle would be helpful. And it's sort of like when you are an artist, what you discover is having constraints actually is a lot of the source of creativity. Yeah. And that, um, you know, there's, I, I think a lot of, you know, schooling is really about character building and training. And part of what you want to do is, you know, you have delayed gratification and all these other yeah. very important things. And I think having constraints almost like, I wouldn't say they're arbitrary, but I think that is part of what schooling should be about. And you can make it clear that in some ways that this is these aren't like fundamental basic principles of the universe that you can't have a, a phone until you're 16. But you can talk about the fact that um, you're working with constraints and that, um, you know, wh whatever it is, um, these are things that, you know, your family does. And um, even if they're done traditionally, that's what they are. But I think you can cast the constraints in different ways. And I think there are healthier ways to do it than others. Have you ever heard of um, uh, Teilhard de Chardin and his, the, the noosphere? Yeah. So he was a French priest. Yeah. Well, and who, a paleontologist. He was working and on... And a paleontologist yeah. who had a very um, elaborate... Um, mystical global sense of view and I share his sense of of the global something that we're making the, the global super organism that we are yeah, creating it, it kind of reminds I, me of the technium the way you talk about yeah, it it's different right. but you know he talked about the noosphere which would be that 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 human invention and you know he didn't I don't think he used the word technology but essentially that's what he was talking about human invention and what what our minds create would overwrap the the, the biosphere and right so it. he had kind of a vision of this of this layer around the globe yeah. that was a thinking news nose meant mm -hmm. like a thinking a thinking layer a thinking sphere that surrounded us and and I do think that that's happening and it's not just the 7 billion people who are all connected to each other but it's actually the you know the 7 billion AIs plus mm. the 7 billion people uh, together and that we are making this sort of global super organism the, the one small detail that I would diverge from um, Shardon is mm -hmm. um, he believed that there was an end point an omega point that this yeah. was all moving to a single end point and I think if you look at the grand cosmic story that we're not moving to an input, that we're radiating outward into more and more. It's, it's like a radiation outward rather than a convergence to a single endpoint. That mm. um, it's it's a process of diversification, outward expansion, and that there are multiple destinations multiple trajectories and that we're moving and that we're, we're not converging to a single endpoint. Right. But other than that, I think the idea of the real frontier, the thing that's even bigger than AI, which is going to be really, it's going to be, AI is probably the most powerful force in the next hundred years. But the thing that's even bigger than that is the fact that we're making a global superorganism of some sort that will have effects way beyond anything that we can imagine. AI will be part of that, but not the whole thing. It's just we have never made um, a planetary something that works in real time. And we're going to be shocked by what will happen when we have you know, a billion people working together on something in real time. Mm -hmm. And we'll be shocked even when a million people do it. And um, right. I still remember growing up in the 60s, a real shock was when Woodstock first happened. <laughs> because it seemed to come out of nowhere. It mm -hmm. was all of a sudden, uh, the same thought occurred to, you know, half a million people. The thought was, you know, I need to be at this farm. And they all showed up. They were all shocked that so many others showed up. And it was sort of a mark of what was happening in the culture at large. And I think we're going to have kind of these Woodstocks where suddenly 
several million people will come together and use these new tools of communication around the globe, and they'll be from all different countries, and they will work together in real time to do something collaboratively, and people will just be dumbfounded. That, oh my gosh, that's possible. What happened? Why? You know. And so that will be the beginning of the second frontier where we have true globalism. I mean, yeah, it's, right. people talk about globalism. We haven't had globalism no. yet. No. That's coming. And when we have a planetary scale institutions and planetary scale governance, we're in a whole different level. And there will be planetary, we have planetary problems and we need planetary mm -hmm. solutions, but mm -hmm. we're going to even have new planetary problems created by this thing. <laughs> And so right. um, yeah. it's, it's, it's a whole other yeah. order, and that's where we're headed after AI. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with philosopher, technologist, and senior maverick of Wired, Kevin Kelly. So I, I'm really glad I, I brought up Teodra Chardin and, and elicited that thinking. I, um, there's one quote of his that I just kept thinking about when I was reading you. Partly inspired by just like thinking about how what is a technology and that fire, and of course, you know, everybody knows this, but someone just really thinking about the fire was a technology, right? And so, anyway, this quote of his, and also, I guess, and maybe this is indulgent because this also kind of flows in with my thinking about like what are the spiritual technologies we need to hmm. meet this incredible possibility that you're describing, this thing we're moving yeah. towards. So, so he said, someday after mastering the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity. We shall harness for God the energies of love. And then, <laughs> then for a second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. The technologies of love. Well, you know, um, I think we're going to be surprised by how deeply emotional we'll, of relationships that we'll have with the things that we're going to invent coming soon, the mm -hmm. robots and mm -hmm. things like that. Because we're going to program emotion into them. That's actually not hard to do. Uh, we're going to program ethics into them, which is not hard to do once we decide what kind of ethics we want to put into them. And so I think we're, we'll have relationships that are going to really you know, play with our minds. Uh, and, and we're not really ready for how, how much love we might have for these and maybe even how much love they will express back, if you can imagine you know, a dog that could talk to you, you know? And so um, it's going to be a real challenge. And as I said, we know how to program in ethics and morality and even emotion into the machines, but what we don't know yet is what we want to put in. It turns out that we think we as humans are highly ethical and moral, but it turns out that our morality and ethical is like really shallow, very inconsistent, right. horrible. Yeah. And as we try to program these into the machines, that process is going to make us better. Mm. You know, we, it's like mm. parenting. It's mm. like we will realize where we're insufficient and we're going to actually become better humans as we try to make our machines better as well. Mm. It's a wonderful way to lead into kind of this vast question I wanted to just ask you to start thinking about as we finish, like how you're, well, I want to say one thing because we're not going to have time for this, but I just absolutely love where your book, The Inevitable, is that what it's called? Yes. Yes. The Inevitable, where it ends is on questioning or close to the end, on just mm -hmm. the asking the power of questioning and how questions become more important. Uh, the quality of our questions becomes perhaps more important than the quality of our answers. Um, that technologies that generate questions are going to be valued. Such a contrast to like how we only deal with competing answers now, right? And yeah. just tie ourselves up into these ridiculous knots. So, yeah. but this this question of you know what it means to be human and how you're mm. through all of the, the, the kind of vast perspective you bring to this and being a part of the internet in the early days mm -hmm. and 
mm-hmm. thinking about technology, thinking about the future of technology. Like, how does your how does your own sense of what it means to be human continue to evolve? You know, right now. Yeah, um, you know, I was uh, actually did some research because I heard a quote that was attributed to Pablo Picasso, which he said, you know. Um, Computers are are useless because they only give you answers. And I actually did some research and found out he actually he actually did say that um, in the 1960s, and that was sort of a real prompt because it appears that more and more that if you want a good answer, you're going to ask a machine. It turns out that machines are actually really good at giving you answers, and um, not just simple answers. I think they're going to increasingly give us answers to complicated questions. But it, it does appear that so far, machines are not very good at a- asking questions. Mm. So we have this world where basically answers have become cheap and ubiquitous and um, pervasive and um, they're everywhere. And so what's much scarcer are good questions. And good questions are kind of like a discovery. They're kind of like um, a way of... Um, of exploring, like what if. And it turns out that they're not very efficient. And so what machines are really good at are all the things where efficiency counts, where productivity and efficiency counts. And those are the kinds of tasks we're going to give to the machines. And we're kind of, as humans, left with things that are inefficient, which happens to be the things that we enjoy most, like discovery or innovation. Innovation is inherently not efficient, or science, (laughs) for that matter. Science is inherently inefficient, because if you are 100% efficient as a scientist, you're just not learning anything new. (laughs) So, you know, trial and error, there's the error part, there's the failure, there's the dead ends, there's trying prototypes, all these things are the essential part of um, exploring, trying, discovering, which are all inherently inefficient. And so are human relationships. And so we're kind of Humans are kind of, we're expert at wasting time. We're expert at, at, um, at things where efficiency and programmability don't, don't count for much. And I think that's, as the robots rise and the AIs rise, that's one of the answers to the questions about what we're going to do. And I think there's plenty of room for us to explore, create, invent, innovate, love, chat, you know, experience things, all of which are inherently inefficient and not things that the machines are good at. And I think ultimately, you know, there's a, a, you know, as you're suggesting, there's a kind of a larger resonance of this idea that, that of asking a question of, of, um, of asking why, not just why the first time, but why the why, 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 why down as far as we can go. And I think, I think in some ways that does echo some structure of the universe that it's mm. probably built on a question rather than an answer. <laughs> that, that, I mean, it's very likely that the universe is really a kind of a question rather than the answer to anything. And so I think that's why we resonate with a question, a good question so much rather than just with a smart answer. And when you talk about, like when you were using the Amish example of like our lives with technology, like how do we, if this this power we have not to determine the direction, but to determine the character, like it's the questions we're going to ask, right? Like, okay, so what will this do to my time with my family? Right. Those, that's, yeah. The questions are also the tools we have for building the character of our technology. Right. Yeah. I mean, the ans- the answer to a good question is more and better questions (laughs) well thank you so much this has just been delightful and I'm just really glad you're out there with the questions you have and living them and bringing what you know to other people I really enjoyed the conversation as well thank you for your great questions you're (laughs) obviously not an AI you're a human (laughs) thank you um, (laughs) I really enjoyed it I take that as a great compliment. (laughs) (laughs) 
Kevin Kelly is senior maverick at Wired magazine. He co-founded Wired in 1993 and served as its executive editor for its first seven years. He's part of the Long Now Foundation, among many other ventures and activities. His books include What Technology Wants and, most recently, The Inevitable. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Jill Ganas, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, and Kristen Lin. Special thanks this week to Claudia Dawson and Natalie Jones for making our interview with Kevin Kelly possible. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, supporting academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, visit templeton.org the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.